Um, Mark chapter 1. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are so brave and strong. Help us to see more of you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm going to read the first four verses. We're going to go through verse 11 today, but I'm going to start with the first four verses because I, I, there's a lot that for us to bite off and chew here. So um, let's start with the first four. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay, by way of review, last week we saw that Mark um, doesn't waste any time proclaiming to us, to anybody who's willing to read his gospel, who Jesus is exactly. From the very first sentence of the book, Mark proclaims that Jesus Christ is not just, not just an anointed ruler. He's not just the most perfect human being that's ever walked the planet. But more than that, he and Jehovah God are one and the same. It's a straight claim for divinity. Again, a proclamation of divinity from the earliest gospel um, ever penned to be in large-scale circulation. The earliest, earliest Christian document um, penned probably between 60 and 70 A.D. within the time that the people were living would have been around to see it and have refuted it, and yet we don't have any of that. From the earliest point of Christianity, Christians were proclaiming Jesus Christ to be God, Yahweh, in the flesh. Don't let anyone else around here tell you different. This is empirical fact. If they want to see it, turn to, to Mark chapter 1. And to prove this claim, he even provides a, a proof text from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30, in verses 2 and 3, in that famous Old Testament scripture that says, before the Messiah would come, there would be a messenger that will, quote, make his paths straight. We talked about this last week. The wording in this prophecy is royal language. It refers to an advanced man who would go, up, go out before a dignitary, a king, royalty, and would literally make the paths straight, would get the branches off the road, would fix the potholes, would also make sure things were safe for bandits and those types of things, but would prepare the way for a dignitary or for a king. And before this Messiah would come, God would send such a character, such a messenger. Now again, it's very important to emphasize that this Old Testament scripture is clearly talking about the coming of the Messiah or the anointed one that would come and bring humanity back to the Garden of Eden, back to the presence of God. I always want to talk to you in the Bible within the larger narrative of the Bible. We're talking about man's exile from God's presence, and the rest of the Bible is God bringing us home, bringing us back. And the Bible ends in Revelation 21. Behold, God is with man again. It buttons up nicely. That's the end of it. That's the whole point. That's the meta-narrative that's going on here. And one such huge prophecy promised to bring man back was this anointed one, this Messiah would come. God's presence, the Bible says, is literally the telos, the fire in which mankind was forged and the reason you were made. You were made to be, singularly, to be in the presence of God, to enjoy the presence of God. 
to be like Adam and Eve in the garden, walking in the presence of God. That is your purpose. And that bleeds into everything else that you do, your work life, your family life. Everything else goes through that grid first, according to the Bible. And every problem in the world and every problem with you is brought to the, to the fracture of that relationship. The problem with abortion, the problem with rape, the problem with abuse, the problem with racism, all of it, your own personal habitual problems and things that you're wrestling with, all of it comes down to a fracture in that relationship, that Edenic relationship between mankind and God. We were made to be in his presence, and when we are, everything is made right, right? When we're not, everything, ourselves, relationships, the world is out of kilter, out of whack. That's what we're experiencing now, see? But notice in verse 3 that it gives this Messiah the title Lord, which in the Hebrew is the word Yahweh, a word that is only used to refer to God. This prophecy was clearly proclaiming that the Messiah, the coming one, would be none other than Yahweh himself. That's what Mark is, is pulling out here. Now Mark is saying that John the Baptist, he's putting a, a historic marker on a person. John the Baptist was this messenger And he was this especially anointed prophet by God sent to prepare the way for the Messiah who Mark is claiming to be Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. How do you know? Well, because John was sent as this messenger to prepare his way. So the contextual piece to keep in mind here, a very important contextual piece, is that except for a few rare exceptions, The prophetic voice in the nation of Israel at this point has now been silent for hundreds of years. So imagine that. And this is especially tragic in light of the very rich prophetic history that Israel has. When you open up the pages of the Old Testament, you have these incredible people that God would speak through to the nation of Israel. You have Moses. Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Amos, Malachi, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, and it goes on and on and on. A rich prophetic history of God directly speaking to a nation. But all of a sudden, from the prophet Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, to the events that we're reading about now, hundreds of years have gone by of absolute prophetic silence from, from any revealed word word from God. And people at this point, they're in subjugation, which means that they are, in their minds, still exiled, even though they're in their own homeland. If they're under subjugation from another nation, they are exiled. They're in punishment from God. And on top of that silence, a lot of people are losing hope at this point. A lot of people are thinking, God is through with me. He's through with us. We are, we've been in the doghouse far too long. Where this is a permanent exile. And now, after hundreds of years of prophetic silence, imagine John the Baptist comes on the scene like a meteor with a black knight in, a, in his backdrop. That's why he's so significant. All of a sudden, there's this voice speaking. Get ready. Get ready. We're on the verge of something. Get ready. We're on the verge of something. And that's why his ministry is so powerful. He was like a drink of cold water after a long drought. The people hadn't heard fresh revelation from God in a long time, and they needed hope. And so that's why you can imagine thousands of people coming out to him in the wilderness 
It seemed that God had left them, and now finally there's someone proclaiming that they have a a word from the Lord. And just like the ancient custom of sending out an advanced man before a dignitary, that's what John's ministry is. He was to clear the way for the Messiah. So here's what we need to ask ourselves. Here's the question at hand tonight. How does one, today, how does one prepare themselves for meeting Yahweh? Right? Uh, Imagine... You're, you have an appointment to go see the queen. You're in England, and you're, you've, you actually secured an appointment on her diary to see her. You know what happens? There's a whole thing, of, the whole slew of preparatory things that you have to get ready for. There's your dress code. There's the way you address her. There's the way you leave her presence. There's what you, things you say, things you do not say. There's a whole educational process before you can meet the queen. The same is true, I'm sure, with any president of the United States or any high-up dignitary. You have to prepare yourself. It isn't just anybody. And that's what's going on here. How does one prepare for a meeting with Yahweh? How, do you, how will you prepare with a meeting with Yahweh? Our lives, I will pose to you, is an ongoing preparation to keep communing with him. And we're going to learn today that one must have a mixture. Here's what's interesting about this passage. One must have a mixture of both hope and fear to meet with Yahweh and to keep meeting with him. And I will tell, I, here's what I think. You lose any one of those, you won't, you won't achieve um, an existential experience in a meeting with God that you, that you were made for. You need both hope and fear. I know fear in the Christian circle is like a four-letter word. You say fear and people, I'm not afraid. <laughs> you know, I'm not being ruled by fear. But hey, there, you know, fear, let's just get down to the bare bones of it. God made fear, right? Fear is what gets you out of a building when it's burning. It's a good thing. Sure, we shouldn't be ruled by it, and it shouldn't be the captain of our ship, but it's a good friend that informs us of some things sometimes, and sometimes that good friend is wrong. But sometimes he's right. Okay? So there's a healthy kind of fear and awe that we must have mixed with hope. But if all we have is fear, that won't work. If all we have is hope, that won't work. One must have both. How do I know this? How do I see this in the passage? Look at verse 4. Look what John does. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He baptized and he preached repentance. What does it mean to baptize someone? Modern people, when we read this, we tend to think uh, of this scene like this religious fanatic leading you know his stupid uninformed followers out to the wilderness to take some pill you know like jim jones or it seems so abstract doesn't it john the baptist saying be dunked in water for a modern person why jesus is coming so be dunked it's like stand on you know and jump up and down and say hookah 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 and then you'll be ready it's like we just like what does that what does that even mean but you need to understand that's not the case. This actually means something concrete and coherent in, in that day. For a Jewish person, listen, you guys, this is powerful when it comes to your own baptism. For a Jewish person, the symbolic power of being submerged and emerged from water had deep, ancient significance when it comes to this meta-narrative, this, this main plot line and narrative of the Bible that we're talking about. For one thing, water was synonymous with a larger narrative of death and judgment 
and simultaneously hope and redemption all at the same time. Water means both. Let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, talking about water, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning, in other words, to a Jewish mind, when they, talk, when they thought about how the world and the cosmos was created, from the very beginning, before there was life, there was water. It represented something undone, chaos, death. And then God began to emerge life from that. It was an act of both... Uh, creativity, but also of incompleteness. Um, And from there, and from that, you'll begin to see this story on loop throughout the Old Testament. You'll begin to see it looping, and with each loop gaining momentum like a progressively building snowball. It gets more and more. Um, Let's jump ahead. When mankind got so wicked, what happened? Water Water came and cleansed the earth. It was a form of both cleansing, hope, redemption, and judgment at the same moment, at the same time. God sent water to cover the earth. um, But the wickedness of mankind, even after that, didn't end there, right? God picked Adam, then God picked Noah to be kind of a new Adam, to start again, a a do-over, And I think a chapter after the flood, or maybe two chapters after the flood, we see Noah uh, drunk in his tent doing something weird. We don't really know what it is, but it was something bad. And the wickedness starts again, and we see the Tower of Babel. He picks Abraham to to try to continue righteousness. And it's all, what are we talking about? Exile and God's attempt to bring mankind back. We're going further east of Eden, further east And God's attempt to bring mankind back. Jump ahead to the book of Exodus. Literarily, now listen, not literally, literarily. In other words, the way the book of Exodus is structured and written is intentional in that it is Exodus, Egypt is bracketed by water of, waters of death on both sides. You've got chapter 2, the Nile, where Pharaoh tells the, the, uh, to throw the, the Hebrew babies. Infanticide, abortion, to throw them into the, into the Nile, waters of death. And then you've got chapter 14 where Israel is saved and Egypt is judged by going through the sea, through waters. You see, it's revolving, it's looping, it's going on and on and on and on. In other words... Egypt was a further movement into exile from Eden, marked again by waters of death. It's a further move east. And once again, redemption meant both judgment, because the Egyptians were destroyed, and salvation through water. They were baptized, you could say. So, does the larger story here, that I've barely scratched the surface of it, does the larger story here give... um, John's preparatory baptism a little more context for you? Does it make it a little more concrete and not so jumping, there? he just has them do this weird thing? For these Jews being under Roman rule, it meant death 
in exile. Just like Egypt was the land of death in the book of Exodus, the living dead in Egypt, so they are the living dead in their own land here, and they were waiting for their Messiah, another Moses figure, to lead them on another exodus. And John the Baptist comes and says, he's here, get ready, we're leaving soon. In case you don't believe me that this is an actual thing, let me read, what, let me read it from Moses' own mouth. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb and on the day of the assembly when you said, let me, let me not hear the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. In other words, a mediator. That the scene he's referring to is God, there was a theophany on Mount Sinai, shook the mountain. Finally, when people, um, and by the way, the tabernacle, do you know what it was modeled after? Someone say the Garden of Eden. Yes, you're right. It was, Martin, it was, it was uh, in fact, um, in fact, if you go back to Genesis, when you're, when, when, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God is describing what mankind is to do, in the Hebrew, the only other place we find that language is temple language, tabernacle language. In other words, how a priest is to worship God. In the beginning, God made Adam and Eve to be priests, to worship. In other words, God made Adam, mankind, to have a worship, to share in, his, in a worship relationship with God. With with God, with Yahweh, and to bring all of creation, to subdue the earth, meaning to bring all of creation into that alignment, to follow Yahweh on, the, on a Sabbath day, seventh day, presence, awesome rest with God. That is your purpose, people. That's your purpose. And so the tabernacle, God brings them out of Egypt, and he has Moses construct this tabernacle that's like heaven, that's also eerily a lot like the Garden of Eden. Why? Every seventh day, a priest would come on behalf of Israel and represent, represent Israel going west, entering on the east, but going west back into the Garden of Eden, back into God's presence, but only through a sacrifice. Every seventh day, this narrative was reenacted, mankind coming back. And after they would sacrifice this um, sacrifice on, on the altar, the nation of Israel would have a feast in God's presence. They would take that food and they would bring their friends, their family, and they would have a feast, a potluck. But specifically, it's even written in Leviticus, in, eat in the presence of God. What is it? In other words, mankind and God restored again, having a beautiful meal, Revelation chapter 20 and 21. It's all linked, you guys. It's brilliantly linked. <laughs> it's brilliant. There is no other ancient book in the world like the, like the Old Testament. And that's just the beginning. That's just the surface. So this meant something. When John the Baptist came in, they start baptizing. What, what are they? Well, I have more scriptures for you. Look, it runs all the way through. Jeremiah said, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of, out of, uh, of Israel out of the land of the north, referring to Babylon, the next um, exile, 
And, out of, and then out of all the countries where they've been driven, they've been scattered. For I will bring them back to their own land and I will give, and I will, that I gave to their fathers. In other words, there will be another exodus. This is what they were expecting. Um, let me read Ezekiel. What is, in your mind, what is in your mind shall never happen? This is God talking. The thought, let us be, let us be like the nations. Let the tribes of the countries and, uh, um, and we... Like the tribes of the other countries, and we will worship wood and stone. God responds, As I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be a king over you. Redemption and judgment. I will bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness. This is all Exodus language. I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there I will enter into, here's the word, judgment with you. This is what what we don't don't like to hear this part, and it's seldom ever preached. But I will enter into judgment with you face to face, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt. In other words, I'm gonna, it's gonna loop again. Another loop is coming. Another exile, another you're going to cry out for salvation like your fathers did and I'm going to send another Moses and I'm going to bring you out and I'm going to enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant just like Mount Sinai. Do you see? What they're waiting for is a second exodus and by being baptized, they are reenacting the exodus which is they're putting their hope in the person who John's speaking of would to come. Now, in other words, they're signing up. I want to go with Moses. It's a, it, he's saying, who's, who, who wants to be let out with the new Messiah when he comes? People are like, I do. Does, now is it making sense? There's political elements in this. Who wants to be free from Rome? There's spiritual elements in this. The, the, there's eschatological elements in this. The coming Messiah is is coming. We're on the verge of it. And that's why emphatically when we baptize people, we do not sprinkle them because you know what it means? When you're dead, you are buried by water in all of these examples and you're emerged back. You know, the symbol of a sprinkle just doesn't really do that. We weren't saved from a rainy day in Seattle. By being baptized, they were reenacting the exodus. They, and, and, listen, he preached repentance. Why? In other words, he challenged and invited people to stop their sinful behavior, to put away their idols, listen, not in a vacuum, in light of the coming Messiah who will bring both salvation and judgment. There's a hope and a fear of being left behind here. That's the only thing that accounts for this kind of momentum. All of Judea, all of Jerusalem are not taking buses and trains. They're walking out into the wilderness to go out and to be with John the Baptist so that he can, immer- he can dunk them in water. Think of that. I mean, think of it here in Seattle. If I said, hey, Two weeks from now, I'm going to be an Edomclaw. Walk out there. And 
all of Seattle and all of the greater Seattle area came out to Mike, to Mike and he dunked them in water. People would be like, what? what gave that kind of momentum to get that many people out there? Well, because John was saying a judgment's coming. There is a fear that gets you out of the burning building. That's why Jude says, for some, save them with grace and love and mercy. For some, save them with fear. You see, Jesus doing this, acting in these, both of these ways in his ministry, he would come along, and for those that were proud, he would judge them with the law. He'd pound them with the law to show them just how deficit they are. And for those that were meek and humble, he would, he would give them grace and mercy. There's a, Jesus brings both, see, and I'm, I, what I want to tell you is it's that it's that kind of baptism that will matter for you. If it's a baptism that's just, just all about hope and a really fluffy camp experience with just about mm, goose pimples and unicorns and I'm going to heaven. If that's all it is, it will fade. And at some point, you'll scratch your head and go, why did I do that? And then maybe you'll have another campfire fuzzy moment and you'll do it again because, man, I just want to experience that all over again. See? But if there's fear mixed in, no, no, I'm doing this because I don't want to be left behind. I'm signing up. And my behaviors are incongruent with what I believe. And I will be judged for that. That's a healthy fear. And I wonder if a lot of us Christians that still struggle with significant sin if part of it is because we've lost that fear. For example, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul, or 2 Corinthians, when Paul talks about the judgment, did you know that there is no clear, without people putting their theology on top of it, there is no clear demarcation between Christians, believers, and unbelievers? In Matthew, there is. But Paul's version of it, when we talk about the Bema seat of Christ, people have said, well, that's the Christian judgment. It's actually, it's actually a generic term used for all judgment. But here's the idea. It's not by works, but it's to judge. Judgment that doesn't have a punishment feel to it in, in all of the Bible. It also has a testing feel, like I'm going to test the genuineness of your faith. Which dovetails nicely and with Matthew, with Matthew's account of the sheep and the goats, there is a sense of, you know, the sheep and the goats, what does, he, what does he test? Did you visit me in prison when I was thirsty? Did you give works? In other words, your faith will produce works. In fact, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2, you were saved not by good works, but to good works. You were saved for a purpose. In other words, your faith... So we live in a world right now, in our Christian Western brains, where we say, yeah, faith in Jesus, and it, you know, if it doesn't really change my life, it's okay because I have faith in Jesus, and it's all about heaven afterwards. You will be judged, Christians. In other words, not in the sense of but the, the genuineness of your faith will be judged. Are you starting to get a little nervous? Good. You need it. You need it. 
Not so that you'll go out and try harder, but so that you'll say, okay, Lord, Lord, I want to I wanna work out my salvation every day. I want to make sure I've got it. I want to make sure that, I, that, that my faith is making a difference in my life. I want to make double sure. Not from a sense of works, but in a sense of, okay, I want to evaluate what's really the genuineness of what's going on. We will be judged. But if it's just fear, that'll freak you out, won't it? If it's only fear, that's going to make you do a whole bunch of things that may not be genuine. It, just, it may be selfish. I'm doing this for me. Maybe you'll do a lot of really wonderful things, but for the wrong motives. It's also mixed with hope here that a Messiah is coming to do, like Moses, to do what we can't do for ourselves. Remember, in Egypt, there, and this is no doubt what Jews were thinking in, those, in that day, in Egypt, their slavery was a complete slavery. In other words, there was no amount of picketing, there was no amount of uh, advocacy and signing ledgers that could get them out of slavery to Egypt. That just wasn't it was a complete slavery. There was no hope inside themselves. They had to rely on a hope outside of themselves to come and save them. How did they do that? They, they were brought to the end of themselves and they cried out and God sent them Moses to lead them out. And that's exactly the idea here. He's saying, they're saying, we can't do this on our own. We are completely bankrupt. We need the hope of another we need the hope of, and it's not, it can't be another Moses. It's got to be a better than Moses. Yahweh, Isaiah chapter 40. Yahweh, it's got to be better. And it was that mixture of hope. How did they find it? Well, look. Look at verse, look at verse 9. So picture the scene. You walk out in the hot wilderness and you see the dust from all the people there. And there you see this wild man who eats bugs. And you know he's, he's screaming so that everyone can hear him because there's thousands of people there. And people are so moved by God's spirit and responding by going down and getting baptized in this river. Thousands of people are there. He's calling out the religious leaders. You know, he's calling them out for their hypocrisy. This guy is incredible. And then he's talking about this one who comes after him. And then all of a sudden, look at verse 9. In those days... Here's our first impression of Jesus Christ, you guys. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Here it is. Remember last week I said we are going to get, Mark is all about action. He's going to show us Jesus, not just tell, it's the least recorded of Jesus' sermons of all the Gospels. It's more about his actions. Because uh, Mark is trying to show us a person. Here he is. Jesus came from Nazareth. What's our first impression of Jesus? Look at him. What do you notice when you read that, that sentence? And use your imagination. God gave you an imagination for a reason. Picture it. What do you see? Jesus came. What does Mark want you to know? First, Jesus came from Nazareth. Not someplace impressive or cultured or cosmopolitan. This would have told you that Jesus lived a quiet, obscure Faithful life in a, in a little town that no one cared about. Filled with farmers, blue-collar workers. Not famous guy. Not ambitious. 
this would have screamed, the word Nazareth would have screamed humble. That's the first thing that Mark wants you to see in this first showing up of Jesus on the scene. Jesus came from Nazareth, not impressive, impressively not impressive, (laughs) impressively so. And secondly, he was baptized. So first, he's an incredibly approachable person. He's humble. He's he's mild. He's not trying to impress anybody. He's not there to make a statement. He's there to save, but not to be famous. Secondly, he was baptized. Now, wait a second. Wasn't John's baptism about confessing sin and idolatry and repenting of it? Well, what was the, why was it so important that he would be baptized? Well, he was telling the people, whether they caught this or not, with the keep within this, this big story, that he's the new Moses that they've been waiting for. Wait a second. Was Moses baptized? Did, did Moses go through a baptism before he led the nation of Israel out of baptism? Yes, he did. Remember? Moses was put into water representing death as a baby. And he was drawn out for a purpose. That's his name. Moses means to be drawn out. He was plunged in. He was pulled out for a purpose. He was a forerunner. And his purpose, he was drawn out for the purpose of saving Israel. Jesus is saying in this statement, he's making a statement, I'm here and I'm being drawn out and I'm going to draw you out of a much greater tyrant than Rome. I'm going to draw you out of ultimate cosmic death. I'm going to do it. It's nothing you can do for yourself. I'm going to do it, but I can only do it if I do it first. I can only do it if I do it first. And notice too, it's not so that you don't do it. It's so that I can lead you through it. We, that's another thing uh, you know, we like to say that's not exactly accurate in Christianity these days. Jesus went through pain and suffering so that we don't have to. No. Jesus went through pain and suffering so that now we can. So that our pain and suffering can have redemption as well. Can bring resurrection life to this planet, to our lives, to this earth. He did it so that we can go through it. The nation of Israel still had to go through I know it's not popular, but I'm here to tell you there's no avoiding (laughs) where we're at. And, but on the same time, there's hope with it. There's redemption with it. Your your pain and your suffering brings redemption. Verse 10 says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens were being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now this would have told everyone present that this man was very different than other, any other man. Look how public this is. And look at the language. When he came up out of the water, here's, here's a Peter word or a Mark word, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. It's a very aggressive word in the Greek. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now let's pick this apart a little bit. Everyone that was there saw that the heavens, saw the heavens tear open. This was public. Like what Paul said in uh, Acts. He said this was not done in a corner. 
This is something that everyone saw. The Spirit descends on him, and they would have heard the voice of God, an audible voice from heaven, saying, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And everyone there would have known that he's special. You know, the guy before Jesus, Steve, that got baptized, that didn't happen for him. And all of a sudden, Jesus goes in and... And and this voice, this is my son. Imagine that. And a dove. (laughs) And again, the Greek describing the heavens parting is very strong. It literally means that the heavens were torn in two in the Greek language. That's what it means. I don't know what that looked like or what that was manifested, but you couldn't have missed it. That's the point. It's not like the movies that we've seen of this scene where this, you know, gentle dove flies on you know his porcelain face and this little beautiful lightning or you know light comes down and shines on him and it's this tranquil beautiful scene everyone just stands in awe and enjoys the tranquil moment no it was what just happened this is a big deal this guy approachable humble man from nazareth is mar- being marked by heaven then verse, t- verse 10 tells us that the Spirit descends on him like a dove. What does that mean? Um, Luke 3.22 says that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. This is describing the anointing of a Davidic king. Just as Samuel anointed David with sacred oil, now God anoints Jesus with the Spirit for a mission. This Davidic king. It looked like a dove. Okay, I've been going on this whole narrative with you, right? Think with me. Again, it seems so abstract if you don't know the, Jew, the, the Jewish story. Think with me. After water, what happens? Let's go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, the firmament was over the, was over the earth. And then what? You can say it. You're probably right. What? The Spirit of God hovered over the water. The word in, in the Hebrew is, is referring to a dove. Um, think, let's go to the next loop. Noah, what happened after water? What did he send out? To, 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 to symbolize new life and a new epoch of, of redemptive history, what did he send out? A dove, right? <clears throat> If the sky tearing and the spirit descending weren't powerful enough, then the voice of God comes. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I, I, just, I can just imagine people looking at one another saying, did you hear what I just heard? What's being, happening here? He's saying, I am the new Moses going before to do something that you cannot do, anointed by God, with a spirit that's in the bodily form of a dove. In other words, I'm bringing a new epic. The new epic of redemptive history starts now. Get ready. Get ready. If you want to follow me, put away your idols. Put away the things that are distracting you. Repent. <clears throat> because this moment will judge you for the rest of your life. <clears throat> have you ever had a moment like that <clears throat> I just watched it's not even barely related kind of related but I just re- watched a documentary <clears throat> well it was a docudrama about the band Queen 
and um, Freddie, Freddie Mercury. <clears throat> just because he's just a, just a really interesting person. <clears throat> and I was watching it. And when they were first coming out, when Queen wrote, when Freddie Mercury wrote the song um, Bohemian Rhapsody, just this incredible piece of music and really weird, but the incredible piece of music. <clears throat> they were trying to sell this to a uh, album producer, a big time um, guy that had a lot of money that could push this album out. And he wasn't sold. It was so different. It was so weird. It was such a weird song. Have anybody heard that song? I see a little silhouette of a man. You know, that whole thing. <clears throat> it, was such, it was so weird. It was so different than any rock band that the guy was like, this is never going to sell. It's weird. And plus, the guy was like, it's seven minutes long. No one puts a, a song that's seven minutes long on an album and they were like, it stays and it's our premiere song. And he was like, no, I'll make this other song the premiere song. We'll name the album after this other song because it's three minutes. And you can do a three-minute version of Bohemian Rhapsody. And in your concerts, you can just go buck wild with it if you want. And they, were, and they were insistent, no. And they had this big impasse. This is a true story. And before they walked out of this guy, they said, this moment will judge you for the rest of your life because if you don't take us, you will forever be known as the man who lost Queen. They, they warned him, you'll lose us because you don't have the vision for this. And he stayed stubborn, and they went on to somebody else, and they became who they were. And he was. He was known as the man who lost queen. There are moments that are judgment moments. <clears throat> this is one of them. Jesus is saying, I'm here. You people came from all over, out to the wilderness. Here I am, this obscure, humble person, and yet I'm the new Moses that's going to lead you out. Choose, get ready. This moment will define you. This moment will define me. Will define you. I'm taking on this moment. I'm going to be the Moses that leads you through the water. And I'm going to be the Passover lamb that is slaughtered so that you can be free. See, it's a mixture of hope, but it's also a call to action. And you've got my proposal to you today is that we have to have a faith that has a mixture of both. What happens when it's all hope for me is that I take God's grace for granted. I say, oh, he'll forgive me. I'll just 1 John 1, 9 it. Because that's all there is, there's hope. But if I look at it if, with only fear, then it becomes a works-based thing and it's no way to live and it drives me batty with anxiety and there's always more that you can do. <laughs> if it's only fear, if it's all up, it becomes all up to me, and that's just, oh my gosh, it's on and on and on and on and on. But if it's, if it's both, because I've done this for you, it's now, it requires action naturally. That's the kind of faith that cleanses the soul, that makes a body of believers function. Instead of saying, you know, when you're about to do something that you know isn't right, to think to yourself, how can I do this after I know what Jesus did for me? You see what you're saying? It's much different than I have to save myself. It's more like, I can't do this after knowing what I know, after going through what I went through. I know too much. I've had those moments studying the Bible where I thought, well, shoot, now I know too much. And what I mean by that is, I can't unknow what I now know. 
which means, darn it. There are some things I would, you know, I could have gone on with my life very happily not knowing that, but now I know, and now it so means now I have to change. It's a judgment moment. I cannot, with integrity of mind, go any further now knowing this. <clears throat> That's the moment here. Jesus is saying, I'm here, I'm the new Moses. This moment will define you. It will save some, it will judge others. Are you prepared? How much do you know? And more than that, how much have you experienced of God himself? You see, that's the nature of Jesus that we're going to see in Mark throughout. He demands a response. Every encounter with Christ is, now what are you going to do? There's extremes. And that's why our culture's little kind of middle part, you know, middle ground, I think Jesus is a pretty good guy. It doesn't work. They're not observing Jesus. He never had those responses. You don't see in the Bible in any of these accounts where people are like, eh, he's cool. He's a good moral teacher. No, you've got people that either hated him or, or left everything radically to go follow him. Those are the only two options you got. And that's a litmus test for us if we've encountered the, if we've had an encounter with the real Jesus. You know you have when you're confronted with a response every time. It's a dual thing. Judgment, hope. This moment will forever define me. And I would be willing to say you can't truly come into Christianity without that kind of a moment. I have to do something with this. I cannot walk out these doors and go, oh, fun facts. I can't do that. This demands that I make a choice. Alignment. One last point. <laughs> wow. One last point. How did he do it? How did he? You understand what's, what's in front of Jesus. Here he is. This is the very beginning of his mission, and he's about to embark on the hardest life of the most suffering way to live that's ever been recorded in human history. Jesus Christ did not live a fun life with a few lows here and there. His life was hard from the beginning, to, and it didn't get better. It got worse to the very end. And then there was resurrection after that. And he wasn't naive to that. How did he mentally get through? Because remember, he's a man from Nazareth. We like to say, well, he's God. You know, if I was God, I'd do that too. I'd walk on water too if I was God. Now, you don't understand. This is the beauty of that Mark, he's, he's Jesus Christ. Jesus, remember we said last week, common name. would be like saying Jim. It wasn't that God came up with a really cool name for one person. This Jesus was a very common name in that culture. So it would be Jim the Christ. In other words, a normal guy who is also God. Human and God in one package. How did he get through the suffering before him? 
Don't dismiss it. Oh, because he's God and he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a divine stud. Don't, don't dismiss it that way. Think of it. How did he get through suffering? He came to take on your suffering. How did he get through that? Look at You hear the voice? What did the voice say to him? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is one of those rare moments in Scripture where you have this report of an audible voice of God, and it's such a beautiful moment. He says, this is my loved son. I read an article a few years ago um, by a secular psychologist that said, I will define manhood. He said, in all of my sessions with all these men that I've ever counseled and gone through therapy, they become men when they stop working for their father's approval and begin living from their father's approval. That's when manhood starts. And that's what gives us the strength. When we know that I have, I have someone loves me no matter what. Someone cares about me no matter what. My performance can never take away or add to my dad's approval of me. Fathers, this is why you're so important. So important. There's a spiritual thing here when a father says to a son, and this is why us men have been so deeply wounded when we haven't gotten it. Or when we, or worse, when we've gotten the opposite of it. I'll never love you, some fathers say. And this is how Christianity heals it. Because in Christ, we all have this voice over us. In Christ, I grew up without a father, and it devastated my life. I'll be straight up with you. There is, my belief is there is no such thing as an absent father. My brain creates a vacuum that, is, that fills, an image that fills the vacuum. There was no such thing as not knowing what it was. I filled it in, and it was devastating for me. And one of the things that profoundly healed me, well, I say one of them, it was all several of the same types of these moments. God saying to me, I see you. I'm your father, and I love you, Mike. You're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I'll tell you what, when, I, when you have that, you can conquer the world. You know that a little bit, those of you that are married or in romantic relationships. You know when you first meet that special someone? Or even when you're married, like seriously, when, when, if, if I gave the sermon and all of you thought it was horrible, and yet Nicole said, oh, that was beautiful, honey. I don't care what you people think. Seriously, there's something about that that's just like, sweet. But if all of you guys love my sermon, and Nicole goes, that one part was really weird. I go, really? What? Tell me. What did I say? I don't remember saying that. Oh my gosh, I hope. Oh, There's power there. Especially for a father. Especially for a father. It's significant. Jesus needed affirmation from his dad. That's my point. That is how, and then after this, you, we're gonna see that he goes into the wilderness to be tempted right away. Right away. Jesus is also, my point is, Jesus is also being prepared this is like a preparing inception here. He's saying, you prepare, 
and watch how I'm going to be prepared. How am I prepared? I'm going to go right immediately, Mark's going to say. Immediately he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted. How did he get through 40, 40 days in the wilderness being tempted of the devil with no food or water? How did he get through that? This event is linked. These are not separate episodes. It's linked in. It was because his dad said, you're my boy. I love you no matter what. No failure can change that. No, no ups or downs. Well, the one constant in your universe is my love for you. And that is what, as adopted sons and daughters of Christ, what we have. And that, my friends, is the only way, the only way you're going to go out there and handle all the pain and agony that this life is going to throw your way. Parents, that's the only gift you can give to your children that will make them mentally strong enough for this world. Is the love of God. The ancient prophets say, will your mother, does a mother forsake her children? And then the Bible being a realistic book says, as a matter of fact, yes. It happens. And then it, the prophet continues, and yet, speaking for the Lord, I will never abandon you. I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Now that you know that I love you that much, that moment will define you. That knowledge will define you. His love is simultaneously a definer for you, a judgment for us, see? At the same time, eternal love means we're now, what do we do with that? We're accountable. Do we respond in gratitude? Yes, sorry, it's one. Stop it, Mike. Shut your mouth. You get it. Let's stand up. Thanks, man. Let's stand up, everybody. Jesus. I'm so sorry, Jesus. that I have continued to sin even after I've known the things that I know. <laughs> Jeez. You have given me such precious insights into you and knowledge into you that there are some, I understand there are the wealth of Knowledge and information that we have about you is such that other believers and Christians in other parts of the world would, they would give anything to have it. And not just knowledge, Jesus, I know that you have also talked to me. You have come after me. You have pursued me. You came to get me. And you said such beautiful things to me. And yet, I have persisted in sin at times. Easily forgetting what you've said. <laughs> and yet, you persistently love even more. Lord, Romans 5, Paul said that. He said, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. The Bible, Lord, is about your persistence to love your stubborn, rebellious people. But Lord, now that we know this today, 
it must call us to action. There's no way around it. Things have to change. Repentance has to happen. And right now, before we take communion, take a moment. I know the hour is late, but what else could be more important, you guys? Take a moment. What are the things coming up in your heart, in your mind, that now that you know about the love of God for you that is inexhaustible, now that you know that, what are the things that you are saying, okay, I can't unknow it, and now something's got to change? Maybe some of you need to apologize to some people. Maybe some need to speak up when you've been silent. Maybe you need to throw some things out or redirect some funds or, well, I don't know, whatever it is. Take a moment to think and let your heart percolate with both that, this defining moment and prepare yourself.